Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Joel Bainan, professor of Middle East history at Stanford University. During our conversation, Joel talks about his time living on a kibbutz in Israel, how that experience influenced the trajectory of his personal and professional life, and the history of Israel and Palestine. All right, Joel. Well, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for, for taking some time and uh, welcome to the exchange. It's good to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. So we'd love to start by uh, learning about you personally and, and your background. I alluded to this a little bit before the interview that I'd uh, done some research on, on you. Um, how did you get interested at, at first in uh, the, the Middle East? Was that something that sort of came about in, in high school for you or college? When, when did that uh, sort of arise for you personally? I think it. Uh, I grew up with it. Um, my family uh, were big Zionists. My uncle and aunt were among the founders of a kibbutz on the northern border of Israel. My parents had lived in Palestine uh, for in the year before the establishment of the State of Israel. So I always had that element in my upbringing, and then my aunt and uncle came back from Israel in 1956. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I had started to study Hebrew because I knew that my cousin didn't speak any English. Mm -hmm. And my uncle on the kibbutz was in charge of building the buildings of the kibbutz. And this kibbutz uh, is unique in all of Israel uh, because uh, it's built on an Arab village. That's not unique. But the crazy Americans who established this kibbutz fell in love with the Arab architecture and decided to build the kibbutz in the style of the Arab homes that were still standing uh, when they arrived. And then everything else that they built was built in that style. And my uncle was in charge of doing this. And in order to do it, he had to go and hire Arab workmen from the neighbors who hadn't been expelled, as most of them were. Uh, so he knew Arabic, and he had all these Arab artifacts. And uh, I was very intrigued by them. And so I grew up uh, with a Hebrew education, but also... Uh, very intrigued with the Arab element mm -hmm. of what my aunt and uncle, primarily my uncle, had, had done. And um, I grew up in the same Zionist youth organization that my parents and my uncles had belonged to. And immediately after high school, I went to Israel for six months for a training program to become a leader. Mm. And uh, at that point, I was reasonably good nearly fluent in Hebrew, and so I asked uh, the kibbutz that we lived on, instead of uh, giving me Hebrew lessons, which everybody else was taking, because only one or two other in the group uh, knew uh, reasonable Hebrew, I asked them to teach me Arabic. So, sure, no problem. This was a, a left-wing uh, Zionist organization, uh, learning Arabic, uh, living with Arabs, uh, some kind of reconciliation was part of the program. Uh, so I started to study Arabic, and I've been doing it ever since. And for those who are not particularly familiar with what a kibbutz is, what, what is the, the layman's definition of what, what that exactly is? In those days, it was an agricultural commune primarily. Uh, by now, almost every kibbutz that still survives uh, has got some form of industry, and by now most of them are privatized and no longer real communes in the way that they were when I was there in 1965-66. And then again, uh, I lived on a kibbutz uh, from 1970-71. Hmm. And I know your your long-term plan, at least when you were younger, was to permanently live in Israel, if I understand it correctly. What, what happened? What, what's the story as to why that didn't come to fruition? It turned out to be a very different place than I imagined. Um, when I went there the first time, when I was 16 years old, um, it was a, a glorious summer camp. I mean, we worked. I worked hard. I worked four hours a day milking cows and things like that. 
but our leaders put chocolate on our pillows every Friday night, and uh, you know, it was it was just a lot of fun. And uh, and I didn't understand very much of what was going on. Um, for example, um, the first conversation that I had in Arabic with an Arab was when I went with my Arabic teacher to uh, the village, uh, now small city of Umm al-Faham, to try to convince uh, people to vote for our political party in the parliamentary election in the fall of 1965. Um, and they were very welcoming, and it was all lots of fun. And here I am, this uh, nearly 17-year-old, by that time American, trying to convince these Arab citizens of Israel to vote for my political party that I'm not going to vote for because I'm not even a citizen. Um, but somehow none of this seemed weird. And um, then it turned out that the reason why we knew these people in this village is because they worked on the various kibbutzim in the neighborhood. Uh, and some of them had actually been landowners of the lands that the kibbutzim were now situated on, uh, some of the kibbutzim had been established before the 1948 war, but expanded their lands very dramatically uh, onto lands from which Arabs were expelled. Other new kibbutzim were established on those lands. Uh, none of that dynamic uh, was was clear to me at the time. Mm. I mean, I some vague understanding of some of it. Then when we, we went back in 1970, we were in a very different kind of kibbutz. Uh, first, uh, in 1965-66, I was on kibbutz Mishmar Emek, which is a ideological center of the kibbutz movement that uh, we were affiliated with. Um, lots of people with high degrees of uh, advanced education, PhDs, uh, psychologists, members of the Knesset. Um, it was a real intellectual political center. I mean, not that people didn't work. They did. Uh, but but people were educated and, and uh, understood something about the world. Kibbutz that we went to uh, when we thought we were going to live in Israel forever and ever um, was also, it was established on three former Palestinian villages. Mm -hmm. um, two of the Palestinians uh, worked for the kibbutz. Um, my first job on the kibbutz was as a cowboy. It was very romantic, uh, riding around on a horse and so all that kind of thing. And uh, one day um, on my horse there with my coworkers, and I asked them, uh, uh, isn't it a problem that uh, right where we are here, um, we can see the ruins of this uh, Palestinian Arab village that the kibbutz is built on? The guy looks like he didn't understand what the question could possibly mean. Um, there were a whole series of incidents like that, um, ranging from uh, they didn't understand our sensibility. We, I, I was there with a group of 65 Americans or something like that. So uh, one day the kibbutz uh, sends us uh, to uh, see the uh, Israeli version of hair. And, uh, it, I mean, this is the emblem of my generation, if you will. And um, I had seen it in San Francisco. Um, but, okay, now, now we're going to see it in Hebrew. That was going to be very cool. And uh, there they are, burning an American flag on the stage. And the Israelis who went with us they were horrified. And said, well, they're burning the flag because they're against the Vietnam War. Well, the Israelis weren't against the Vietnam War because they weren't against any war because they had just fought a war in 1967 and they're in the middle of this drunk with uh, victory and uh, just arrogance and conceit. Um, and they, they couldn't understand why why would we be anti-militarist it just didn't yeah. make any sense to them um, what else, what other things uh, happened kibbutz had a chance to uh, 
extend its lease on uh, some lands that it didn't have the personnel to actually work. It was not a small kibbutz, you know, 110 or so members and plus the 65 of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't big. And um, the norms of the kibbutz were that uh, we don't hire labor. So it was bizarre enough that we have these two Arab workers who used to own the land that mm-hmm. the kibbutz is on or part of the land. Uh, now we're going to take out a lease, a long-term lease on more land that we know we can't work and we're going to have to hire people to work it. And the kibbutz's decision-making process is that there's a meeting every Saturday night and things like this are discussed and there's a vote. Very democratic. Um, And at the series of meetings that were uh, discussing this, um, basically was, well, we need the income from this land in order to uh, ensure the future of our children. And I was the, uh, the secretary, the leader of our group, and also one of the few people who Hebrew was good enough to participate in the discussion. And so I'm trying to say that, well, but um, we didn't come to the kibbutz to be landlords. We came to the kibbutz because this is the, the socialist future of mm-hmm. Israel that that we want to build. People looked at me like I was a lunatic. Hmm. I mean, if you think about the trajectory of Israel since 1970-71, of course, I was a lunatic, but I didn't understand that at the time. Hmm. Um, Probably the thing for me that most did it that uh, caused me to leave the kibbutz and and go to the city and start my MA in Islamic studies at the Hebrew University Um, I was working in the turkeys at this point. One of my friends wanted to work in the with the cattle, and since I was the leader of the group, I didn't think I should put my preference above his. So it was it was a different time. People wouldn't do that sort of thing today, not in Israel and certainly not in the United States. Um, so I'm working in the turkeys, and they're disgusting animals, I have to say. And... Uh, the deal is that uh, after you uh, market them, you have to clean all the turkey manure out of the turkey houses and uh, disinfect it, and then you bring in three-day turkey chicks and you bring in the, begin the cycle again. But the place has to be totally disinfected because otherwise the three-day chicks will get sick and die and you lose a lot of money. So my Israeli co-worker um, had read about this new process where you infuse the manure with chemicals and the chemicals are supposed to disinfect it. And what that means is that you only have to do this very backbreaking process of shoveling out all of the manure every third round rather than every round. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a good idea. So, okay, we try it. And then when we test to see is the manure actually uh, purified and uh, it's not. So now we have to dig it all out in much less time than we normally would have. So I uh, tell them, you know, we have to ask the uh, work organizer for some extra help because we're never going to be able to do this by ourselves. It's just the two of us um, in, in time for the uh, new checks to arrive. And he says, without batting an eyelash, um, this this isn't work for Jews. This is work for Arabushim. Hmm. Arabushim is niggers, just straight up. And I'm like, I, 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 I didn't have a word mm-hmm. to, to, to respond. I mean, the, the idea that um, somebody who's living in this uh, society that was supposed to be the vanguard of progressivism uh, if, if, would, would say such a thing. Uh, let alone the fact that we actually did go out and hire Arabs to do the thing. Where did the notion come from, from your perspective, that it would be this bastion of progressivism? 
And do you look back at yourself now and think, my God, I was so naive? Or how do you view your perspective coming into Israel? Um, a lot of people saw it that way. I mean, we were a socialist, Zionist organization. We were in opposition to the government. Uh, we had a long history in the country as an organization. It wasn't like we were a insignificant force in the country. Um, this is how we were educated. This is how I educated several generations of people who followed me. Mm -hmm. um, we, it wasn't off the wall. If I look at it now and try to understand how all this happened, well, of course, it, 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 it fits together. Um, Israel is a settler colonial project. Uh, the ethos of settler colonialism absolutely undermines any kind of progressive thought whatsoever. You see that if you compare what Israel is today with what it was in 1970 or 1965 or the further back you go, um, the less obvious it was that what happened not only in 1948 with the expulsion and flight of half the Arab population of the country, but all the way back to the turn of the 19th, 20th century, now it's clear that, that there's a, a certain trajectory and um, I'm a historian, so I don't like to use the word inevitable, but it's a logical progression. Um, in order to understand that, you had to learn the history in a radically different way mm. than the way it was taught to me, and mm -hmm. I then subsequently taught it to others and, until I learned better. Um, there were a lot of people around the world um, not just Israelis, not just Jews, not just Zionists, um, who thought that Israel was something completely other than what it actually was and still have a hard time getting their minds wrapped around what it's become. Hmm. So you leave Israel and you, as you mentioned, you alluded to beginning your, your studies in Middle Eastern history or Islamic history. Where did you go after you left Israel? Did you immediately come back to the U.S. and, and get educated in the States? Or how did? What, what's the next step yeah, in your so education? When I left the kibbutz, I went to Jerusalem. I studied in Jerusalem for uh, two years. Uh, the first year very seriously. The second year uh, much less seriously. Um, getting an M.A. in Israel was a very big deal then. Um, I was very politically active. Um, the police framed me up on a charge of causing death by negligence, which exactly the opposite was the case. It's a long story, not worth getting into. But I was facing the possibility of going to jail for three years. Plus, I was going to have to go to the Army, uh, which I definitely didn't want to do at that point. Um, so I left the country and uh, came back to the United States and finished my MA at Harvard. Mm -hmm. The, the philosophy that you were alluding to that you had come into Israel with, which you, you said was not uh, an insignificant number of people had that sort of socialist progressive idea of what that country should be, was that just simply a, a matter of you being raised on a different philosophy than what the predominant ethos of the culture actually was in Israel? How do you explain the contrast in, in views of the, the nation? We were on the left of the hegemonic ethos. Mm -hmm. We were not oddballs. Labor Zionism built the state of Israel. Uh, socialism was not only not a bad word, it was pretty much the only word. Mm -hmm. uh, from the early 1930s until 1977, the dominant force in the country was some form of socialist Zionism. More social democratic, more Marxian, several different trends. And we were on the far left of all of that, but it, it's not like we spoke a language that nobody else in the country understood. Mm -hmm. We spoke the language that the majority of the country mm -hmm. understood. 
And so how, how was that in such contrast to your experience that you actually uh, came into contact with when you were actually living in Israel? How do you explain the, uh, not necessarily imperialist, but the sort of a superior attitude of, of Israelis that, that you were referencing and also just the more militaristic tendencies of Israel that we've seen over the last few decades? So first, the main socialist Zionist or labor Zionist current, what became today's Labor Party, already in the mid-1930s, the top leadership, not necessarily the rank and file, but mm -hmm. the top leadership, especially David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, understood um, there's, no, there's no possibility of a compromise with the indigenous population. This conflict is going to be decided by armed struggle. The key task in building the Jewish state is to build uh, an effective armed force. Doing that requires uh, national unity, moderating class struggle, uh, That led to um, pushing to the side the most um, politically left-wing uh, officers in what became the Israeli army. I think they were just cashiered, the Palmach, uh, which was the embodiment of, of the far left, uh, and which was absolutely crucial militarily to Israel's victory in 1948, mm. was dismantled because Ben-Gurion thought of it as a threat. So even before the 48 war was over, um, it there was the beginning of an effort to unravel the left wing of labor Zionism. Um, Mapam, the party that we belong to had 20% of the votes in the first election hmm. and Ben-Gurion chose to form a coalition without them. Um, so that, that's a good sense of you know, what, what we represented mm -hmm. at that time and place. Winning wars makes you militaristic. So Israel won in 48. Um, the war was really over and Israel had decisively won uh, by the end of June. That's, of course, not how the story is told. I mean, I had to get a PhD to study long enough to learn about things like that. And Benny Morris and other Israeli historians had to uncover all the archival evidence for it as it began to be uh, uh, made available in the 1980s. Uh, 1956, naked act of aggression in uh collaboration with French and British imperialism. Um, that is certainly not how I understood that war when it was happening. And I was old enough, I was only eight, but I was old enough to know that it was happening. 1967 was not an existential threat to the state of Israel. Uh, there was an Israeli decision to resolve a crisis by armed force when other possibilities still existed. Uh, that is not how I understood what was going on at that point. I was uh, loading uh, equipment uh, on airplanes in what was then Idlewild Airport to send to Israel because we thought we were going to be exterminated. Um, 1973, the war did not have to be thought, fought. Uh, Anwar Sadat had proposed a peace treaty to Israel in 1971 on pretty much exactly the same terms as the peace treaty that was actually uh, agreed to. Uh, later on. Every other war that Israel has fought since then didn't need to be fought either. When you develop the habit of resolving political issues uh, by armed force when it's not necessary, and when you win every time, and even when you don't win, you decimate 
your opponent, Gaza Strip, last summer. Can't really call that an Israeli victory since it's not even clear what there was to win, but they certainly killed a lot of Palestinians. A society becomes numb to that, 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 that there's any moral problem there. Hmm. It's just what we do and who we are. And is the difference then just in your education as a young person that the stories you were told about what had happened was different from what you learned later and therefore the different sort of views that you had of what Israel should be and was was just different than what it actually was when you lived there? Yes, but everybody had some version or other of the same story that I did. Uh, There were almost everybody. My oldest uncle, who was also a leader in this same socialist Zionist youth organization, left in 1942 and never went to Palestine. The reason he left was because he was critical of the tendency in the movement to draw too close to the Soviet Union and to embrace Stalinism which was a strong trend both in the United States and in in Palestine at the time. At that point, the movement did not support establishing a Jewish state in Palestine. Uh, Its program was a binational Arab-Jewish state. And uh, we all, well, I wasn't born, but my parents, my uncles, that's what they believed. And uh, I learned from them that that that's what we would have preferred. Mm. He began to become critical of Zionism when Hashem Eretzayir, our organization, abandoned binationalism uh, after the United Nations partition plan uh, and formed Mapam with other left Zionist currents. And growing up, I always knew that I had this funny uncle who wasn't a Zionist. And he was very reticent about expressing his opinion because he was the only one in the family and, frankly, the only Jew I ever knew at that point. Um, But eventually, though, especially after the Vietnam War began, and I began to see him more often. He worked for a national left-wing newspaper that no longer exists, The Guardian. It came up, and especially after 1967. And he was 99% right. But I left for Israel in 1970 because I had been in this movement since I was nine years old, because I was had already had my physical and was going to be drafted and sent to Vietnam within months if I didn't leave, um, because uh, all my friends were going. Hmm. I knew at that point that there were issues. I didn't understand how big they were. When I came back, first person I went to see was my uncle. And he was the only person in the family who understood what I had been through. And he had never actually been through it, but intellectually he had worked it through. Hmm. He, he understood exactly what I was talking about. And what specifically, what, what viewpoints, what opinions had he worked through intellectually that you we understood that if there wasn't going to be a binational state, then there was going to have to be a expulsion or some form of marginalization of the indigenous population. He understood that if there wasn't going to be a binational state, um, that ultimately the state was going to have to align itself with uh, imperialism. And that was 1956, British mm-hmm. and French imperialism straight up. Um, a subsequently American imperialism, but, but that wasn't until uh, really until after the 67 war. 
Um, he understood about the racism. Uh, I mean, he, he understood enough about what the choices were and, and what you would have to do to, to keep viable the notion of a progressive Zionist project. Mm -hmm. it, having learned more history than he knew at the time, I mean, he had a high school education. He was brilliant and had read more than I had read uh, after I got my MA, but he was a political activist and not, a, not an intellectual. I mean, he was an intellectual, I was a political activist and not a scholar. When I read more history than he knew, it became clear that the breakpoint was really not 1947. The decisive decisions were made much earlier, mm -hmm. um, at least a decade earlier, um, in some ways even before that. Mm. Um, but he had the main story right. Let's talk about that a little bit, the, the historical original sins or mistakes that were made prior to your time in Israel that, that you, in thinking back, if you think that there were decisions that could have been altered historically that would have averted a lot of these issues that, uh, that you experienced and we're still dealing with today, what, what, were, what were those mistakes in, in your mind from a historical perspective? So I don't like to use a term like original sin because... Um, what modern-day state is free of original sin? The United States of America, a genocide of indigenous people and hundreds of years of slavery, uh, to our credit, uh, and Britain? I mean, how many hundreds of millions of people did they dispossess in the course of establishing the British Empire and so on? I mean, so there's no immaculate conception of modern states. States are created by war. Uh, and that's, that's how it is. The idea of creating a Jewish state was always, from day one, conceptualized within the framework of settler colonialism. In the 19th century, for Western Europeans and Eastern Europeans even, uh, and North Americans, that was not a bad word. I mean, that's how the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia were established. Uh, this was more than acceptable. Mm -hmm. What the trick that was pulled on Israel is that unlike the British white settler colonies, the state of Israel only came into existence on the eve of the big movement of decolonization. India's independence in 1947, uh, the decade of decolonization in Africa, um, the end of the British Empire in the Middle East uh, with uh, uh, the... Uh, military coup of July 23rd, 1952 in Egypt, uh, Algeria, um, Indochina. Uh, so Israel was established almost exactly at the moment when settler colonialism became an unacceptable thing in the world. And... Um, the tide was going the other way. Israel got away with this because of the Holocaust, basically. Um, the Holocaust meant that both the Soviet bloc and the West thought that this was a fair compensation for what Europeans had done to Jews. And the fact that uh, there was an Arab population in Palestine, which still comprised two-thirds of the population in 1948, was 
not of any consequence, and insofar as people thought about it at all, the Arab states and some important Arab political figures at that time um, were either aligned with the with British imperialism, the Egyptian monarchy, the Iraqi monarchy, the Jordanian monarchy, um, and there had been uh, prominent uh, Arab and Palestinian uh, pro-Nazi figures like Haji Amin al-Husseini. Um, probably uh, he did more to discredit the uh, Palestinian nationalism, not only in 1948, but for decades after and for some people still today. Um, so Israel was understood globally as a progressive phenomenon. Um, the Weavers, who were close to the Communist Party in the United States, Pete Seeger, um, they sang Hebrew songs. Uh, which is a militaristic song, uh, was in the top 40 in 1951, them singing it. Um, so that's, that's an indication that this was considered, Israel was considered uh, a progressive phenomenon uh, by people who were close to the Soviet Union as well as by Western liberals. Hmm. That only began to unravel I would say with the first war in Lebanon in 1982 and then a little bit more with the first Palestinian Intifada from uh, December of 1987 till when do you want to say that it ended? 1991 or 1993? Depends how you figure. Um, and it's only since then that some kind of fundamental critique of, of Israel and Zionism uh, has gotten any uh, significant space in the West. But really, I would say it, not until the three recent assaults on Gaza uh, in, in which Israel's behavior is just outrageously excessive, um, have you begun to see large numbers of American Jews who uh, have a critique that ranges from deep discomfort to utter rejection and revulsion? If, if, the, if the major issues that you were just articulating with the initial creation of Israel in 1948 was... Uh, part of the major problem, what would, knowing in, in your study of, of history, were there other alternatives that would have been superior to that decision? Were there other considerations that were being tossed around for where else Jews potentially would be able to live together in peace? What, what would, in, in studying history, what are your general recommendations or, or steps that could have been taken to prevent that uh, initial mistake? So again, I don't, like to think of it as a, an initial mistake. And, and the moment of inception was certainly not 1948. Mm. There were binationalists in the Zionist movement. It was a very respectable trend within Zionism. Uh, not only um, the socialist group that I belong to, but Martin Buber, Judah Magnus, uh, Henrietta Zold, who was the leader of Hadassah, which is the largest American Zionist organization. Not all of Hadassah embraced by nationalism, but she in her personal capacity did. Albert Einstein. Um, so this was not a, a shabby, ragtag set of ideas. Um, but if you face a situation in which you're going to have to fight for what you think is your survival, um, that kind of idea won't survive that situation. And it didn't. Uh, which is to say, in 1923, 
Vladimir Jabotinsky, who's the ideological father of today's Likud party, said, um, I have great respect for the indigenous Arabs. Uh, they may not be at our level of civilization. This is the discourse of, of white people in that moment. But uh, no native people has ever agreed that someone else can come and settle their country and take it over. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And if we want to do it, and we do want to do it because we believe that Zionism is a moral project and a necessity for Jews, we're going to have to develop the military means to make it impossible for them to dislodge us. So he called it in 1923, uh, and he was absolutely right. The, the moment of confluence when Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion began to see things the same way was in the mid-1930s. So at least from then, the die was cast. There were many moments subsequently when things could have been different, but choices were made to pursue the nationalist hard line. So, for example, on June 16, 1948, at a point when some 300,000 Palestinian refugees had already fled or been expelled from the country. The interim Israeli cabinet decided they're not letting a single refugee back. What if they hadn't made that decision? What if they said, okay, this was in the war and we had to do certain things and so on, but when the war is over, and within a few weeks after that, they had essentially won the war. Um, when the war is over, we are going to let people come back who want to live with us. That would have been a very, very difficult decision to make. And not only that, you have 250,000 survivors of the Holocaust in Europe. Um, and you're thinking they're all going to come to Palestine. Uh, and a large proportion of them did. Now, actually, most of them wanted to go to the United States, but the United States wasn't letting them in because there was a considerable amount of anti-Semitism in this country at that point still. Uh, the British were not letting them in. Um, and so the, the Zionist agents in the uh, uh, camps, uh, the, deep, the displaced persons camps, um, organized people to agitate that they wanted to go to Palestine and so on, and, but actually they didn't. Uh, I mean, some did, of course, but the majority did not. Uh, so you're thinking, well, the, all the displaced persons are going to come and the masses of Jews are going to come and we want to have a place for all these Arabs. And so who, what's more important? Um, well, and large numbers of Jews did come. The, the Jewish population in the country doubled between 1947 and 1951. There still would have been plenty of room for as many Arabs who wanted to come back uh, to come. Uh, but people already start thinking about it in very different terms. When you came to the country and you are living literally in the house of a Palestinian family who fled or was expelled six, 12, 18 months ago, and you weren't in the country when that happened, so you don't even really know what went on. You're going to vote for some politician who says we have to bring these people back because otherwise we're never going to be able to live in peace with our neighbors. It doesn't make sense. Mm. I mean, it does make sense, but it doesn't make sense politically that that, that can't happen. Wouldn't the idea of just going back in history, if the U.S. just would have allowed the majority or nearly all of the 250,000 surviving Holocaust individuals to come into the U.S. and have there be no need for an Israeli state, in, in your mind, would that have been a better result than the one we're living with now? History doesn't work that way. Um, first of all, anti-Semitism was pretty strong in this country, and that just wasn't a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, 
remember that uh, Roosevelt refused to bomb the trains taking people to Auschwitz. Um, said that there were higher military priorities, which, you know, may, maybe in some grand strategic sense there were. I'm, I'm not qualified to talk about military history, but um, that sent a message to American Jews, and, and I grew up with that in the shadow. It was one of the reasons that uh, I was so strongly a Zionist. Um, I grew up with kids in my school wanting to beat me up because I was Jewish. The question isn't, there would have been no need for, for the state of Israel. The question was always, and this question was raised within the Zionist movement as early as 1891, what is the nature of the Jewish community that we want to establish in Palestine, the land of Israel? Is it going to be a cultural center for Jews? Or is it going to be a national state which is going to restore the Jewish people to history, which was the more mainstream Zionist view? What does restore the Jewish people to history mean? It means that history made a mistake 2,000 years ago when we were exiled from our land. And we have been not only exiled from our land, but exiled from history because we haven't had a national state. We haven't had sovereignty. Uh, we haven't had what all the other people of the world have. Well, of course, many other peoples of the world, like the Armenians and the Kurds, just to speak of two in the Middle East, don't have that either. But, okay, this is what people who are uh, formulating Zionism in intensely nationalist milieu in Eastern Europe are thinking about. And... Uh, so this is what we need. If you decide that that's what you need, then some version of what we have now is what you're going to get, because that's what national states do. Israel isn't any worse than any other state established under similar circumstances. Far less bad in terms of the numbers of indigenous peoples massacred and displaced than the United States, for example. Um, so we're not in a position to say, oh, well, look, this was just a, a horrible thing that is somehow uh, uh, errant in the world. No, this is the way things are in the world. Hmm. Just not the kind of values that I was educated on. How do you see the future playing out in terms of just coming up with ideas for a constructive way to outline or hypothesize or even just brainstorm regarding Israel and Palestine, what what suggestions would you have for steps that political leaders could take, given the limitations of the situation we find ourselves in now? If you could be king of Israel uh, and unilaterally make decisions that you think would, would be constructive for the nation, what, what would you do? So first... Um Israel needs to be detached from the United States. The United States has been all along an impediment for uh, any kind of settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, every agreement that has ever been reached has been reached behind the back of the United States first, and then the United States came in. Um, both uh, Jimmy Carter uh, and... Uh, President Clinton, uh, the original uh, impetus for the negotiations that they stepped into and brokered at the end came behind their backs. Um, but more. Um, the United States has won the enmity of the entire Arab and Muslim world. Israel doesn't need to be part of that. Two, um, there needs to be some acknowledgement of the dispossession of the Palestinian people. That doesn't mean that every single Palestinian refugee or their uh, descendants has to come back. It might mean that a significant number do come back. Um, but begin with an acknowledgement. Uh, Australia apologized for the genocidal campaigns against the Aboriginal people there. 
didn't lead to the collapse of the Australian state. Two, three, a completely different conception of what peaceful coexistence has to be popularized. Since the Oslo Accords, and even before for more left Zionist elements who advocated negotiating with the PLO as early as the late 70s, the notion was we're going to have a Jewish state here and a Palestinian state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. As Yitzhak Rabin used to say, us here, them there. That sounds like a good idea. I mean, at this point, that's not very, very likely to happen at all. But it sounded like a very reasonable idea, except 20% of all the citizens of Israel are Palestinian Arabs. Where are they going to be? Where is their here? Well, so the fact that they weren't expelled or killed leaves Israel with a... Well, I don't see it personally as a problem, but I see it as an opportunity. Um, but if it means this place can never be a purely Jewish state, and frankly, um, that's a bad idea. We, we call that segregation in the United States, and we don't think it's a good thing. Uh, so Israel needs to figure out how to live in the neighborhood that it decided to move into. Can't move into a neighborhood and say, no, nah, we don't like all our neighbors. They're backwards. They're violent. They're this, that, and the other, and we're just going to kill them or whatever. I mean, no, you, that's a formula for endless conflict. And in fact, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, not too long ago, acknowledged that. He was asked. So does that mean talking about the demise of uh, negotiations with the Palestinians and so on, does that mean we're going to live forever on our sword? And he said, yeah. And that is what his branch of the Zionist movement, going all the way back to Jabotinsky in 1923, has believed. So he is only publicly affirming what has always been the line of that strand in the Zionist movement. The difference is that people who had said that in 1947 would have been called fascist terrorists, and Ben-Gurion did call Begin a fascist terrorist, and today they're running the state. Um, so I don't think it's such a good or even viable idea that Israel will live by the sword forever. I mean, live by the sword, you die by the sword. It means that a fundamental rethinking of how Jews are going to live in that part of the world has to happen. And that means being open to the region. Uh, in a way that Israel is not now, and, and, and beginning with its own Palestinian citizen population, and then the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and then the refugees, and then the neighbors. Now, that sounds almost lunatic when you have the Islamic State roving about and uh, revival of Al-Qaeda. and I mean, it's an ugly scene out there for sure. And Israel is by no means responsible for all of it, although it is responsible for some of it. Uh, the United States is, well, the United States and Saudi Arabia are primarily the primary uh, uh, forces responsible uh, for, for that, uh, going all the way back to the Mujahideen that the Reagan administration funded and trained in Afghanistan, supported by uh, Saudi Arabia, using arms supplied by Israel, because Israel had a huge cache of Soviet arms that it had captured in 67 and 73 wars. So this is not going to happen tomorrow, because the, the situation regionally is as bad as it could possibly be for the rethinking of the whole project of Israel. Um, so for the immediate future, the prospect is for much, much, much more violence and ugliness of all sorts. 
I'm, I, I am, I say that with deep sadness. Uh, my entire family still lives there. Hmm. Um, so it's both a personal and a political question for me, plus my general unhappiness over the probability that large numbers of people are going to be killed. But that's what's going to happen in the near future, I think. And eventually, the regional and global balance of forces will change. And some openings will be created that will allow people to think about things in a different way. Hmm. Last question I want to ask you, and I know you, you said that as a historian, you're uh, not prone to use the word inevitable when talking about the future. As you said, it, it sounds like it, it's your belief, and I would imagine the belief of, of many scholars and historians that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, a generation from now, if you were to, to try to predict uh, as best you can what you think the situation will likely look like in the uh, Israel-Palestinian conflict, what, what do you, what's your best guess in terms of 30 years from now where uh, we're likely to be then? I don't do that. I mean, I really don't do that. Um, I mean, there, there are two. Maybe I'll rephrase the question. What, what are the tools, not knowing, knowing what, what the future will, will possibly look like 30 years from now, what are the, what are the, what are the general tools in the world, uh, in your mind that can be used as sources of progress or optimism for people that are wanting peace or wanting a resolution or wanting improvement in the general quality of what are the, what, what can that section of the human population grasp onto and, and try to work with to improve the situation in your mind? So for the last 10 to 15 years, there have been uh, a good number of small but persistent projects in which Palestinians and Israelis have collaborated in resisting the occupation. One group is called uh, Ta'ayush, which means living together, that emerged after uh, 11 Palestinian citizens of Israel were shot dead by the Israeli police during uh, demonstrations in solidarity with the first days of the Second Intifada. Um, they are still functioning, uh, especially in the South Hebron Hills. Uh, another group uh, is called Anarchists Against the Wall. They emerged uh, as Israel was constructing the separation barrier, um, be much of it actually inside the West Bank and effectively annexing about 10% of the West Bank. Uh, they would go to villages where the barrier was going to uh, effectively confiscate uh, the village's lands and participate sometimes day after day, but more commonly week after week in demonstrations. In some cases, uh, the barrier was uh, rerouted and, and some of the village's lands were uh, returned. There's another group which is called Zohrot, which means remembering, uh, which has taken upon itself to remind Israelis uh, of what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the disaster of 1948. So uh, they go around doing things like putting the original Arab names on things which have been Hebraized. They take people on tours to uh, Arab villages. Um, the, in working together with Palestinians, Palestinian Israelis have also taken to commemorating the Nakba, uh, some of them by uh, conducting marches to their uh, original villages because the Palestinians who live in Israel, uh, some of them are internal refugees. So they were they moved from their village to, say, Nazareth to get out of the way of the fighting uh, and then weren't able, weren't allowed to go back to their own villages. Uh, after the fighting, 
in some cases, the villages were uh, physically destroyed. In other cases, they still stand or parts of them still stand, but they still can't go back. Um, so there are a good number of organizations, small, but a good number, uh, and a broader number of um, intellectuals and political activists, both Israelis and Palestinians, who have a history now of working together, people who know each other very well. Um, the Israelis, many of them have learned uh, Arabic. Um, the Palestinians, a lot of them know Hebrew because at one point they worked in Israel for some years until that um, uh, possibility was cut off during the Second Intifada, and now it's bit by bit, but under brutal and ugly circumstances being permitted again. Um, that's the future, if there's going to be a future. So the question is, will those forces gather strength? Will people see that that this is a way of living that provides real security? Or will they not be convinced? And I don't know. What I can say is, uh, I was actually writing a book about this phenomenon um, in 2010, and then the Arab uprisings happened, and the other part of the Arab world that I write about is Egypt, and all these things were happening there, and I was very deeply enmeshed in Egypt, having lived there for most of the time between 2004, 2008. So I turned to writing about Egypt, and my most recent book is, in fact, about Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, so I abandoned that book. I mean, it's still sitting in my on my hard drive, but I, I didn't finish writing the book. Um, and things are different now than they were when I was writing the book. Um, those movements are both stronger and weaker. Hmm. Um, different directions for different things. Partly it has to do with the fact that the separation barrier is essentially completed, uh, which it wasn't uh, when I began to write the book. So, that, so there is, for me, a hopeful path. I mean, when I was writing that book and doing the research, I meant I was going to these demonstrations and um, uh, with Ta'ayush to uh, uh, stand guard and uh, uh, allow uh, Palestinian farmers to uh, plow their lands uh, uh, because settlers would otherwise come and uh, violently disrupt that um, and help install solar panels because there's no electricity grid there. Uh, so, so I was hanging around with all of these things, and um, the only time that I felt in the slightest bit insecure was when the settlers came and started to do violent things, and then the army would come and protect the settlers, um, rather than try to ensure the security of the Palestinians who were being aggressed on. Um, so, okay, I'm maybe different than a lot of Israelis because I do speak Arabic and because I've always believed from my childhood that we could and should live together with the Arabs. Um, so it was less of a leap for me. Uh, but some of the people who, some of the Israelis, had come from ultra-Orthodox religious backgrounds, um, homes where there was no left-wing sentiment whatsoever. Um, they had gotten to this through uh, animal rights or veganism or whatever. Um, so there, there is a path that young, and it's overwhelmingly young Israelis, can take uh, that that creates building blocks for a better future. Um, the fact that the path exists is no guarantee that it will be followed, though. Hmm. 
Joel, thank you so much for your time and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. 